<clears throat> I chose all those old hymns um, last, uh, last week, last Wednesday, I guess. I gave them to Wes uh, just because uh, they were a comfort to me. Uh, I got this download from, I think it was Chris Rice. You've heard of Chris Rice? And it's all old hymns that he has remastered uh, and redone. And the words are just a blessing to me. So um, those are all the old hymns he was singing this week. And so I thought I'd have us sing them today as well. Full of praise, full of good words. And uh, I'm glad we are able to do that. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 17 here in just a few minutes. John chapter 17, of course, is the Lord's intercessory prayer for his people. The uh, doctrine of God is a massive subject, and each time someone teaches, whether uh, wherever it is, it, it seems that only the surface is scratched each time we began on the doctrine of God. But it's always a worthy, uh, it's always worthy to make an effort to learn and to contemplate the doctrine of God and try to wrap our minds around what He has revealed of Himself in the Scriptures. And I would like to take up just a small peripheral part of that massive subject, the doctrine of God. And that is how it affects God's people. <clears throat> One of the earliest admonitions, I guess, I can think of as a young man and as a young believer in Christ was this from uh, fellow church members and fellow Christians. Uh, Every time you sit down to read the Bible, think about what the passage, passage says about God and or Jesus. Others told me would write down your thoughts of what you think the passage that you're reading says about God. New believers should be taught to find the Lord in every passage they read. And I think that's still a good admonition for us today. No matter how old you are in Christ, no matter how long you've been uh, in church and how long you've been a Christian, you should be thinking about what's in the passage about our God every time you open the Scriptures. Almost every good catechism that has been written to teach children the Scriptures Uh, tell us that the purpose of man is to glorify God and to find satisfaction in the Almighty. And if you've done any serious reading on the doctrine of God, you will have come across a classic book on this subject, um, written by Stephen Sharnock. He authored a book entitled, The Existence and Attributes of God. Which is a pretty good sized volume book considering the subject of God in the scriptures. Well, there was an English pastor and professor named Edward Veal who wrote in the preface, one of the prefaces of Sharnock's book. And let me quote a little portion of a paragraph from Pastor Veal's preface. He says this quote, This excellent glory, that is the glory of God, is the subject of this book to which all created beauty 
is but mere shadow and duskiness. Now, I've had a couple times this summer to go to um, the lake for a day with my family. Uh, I think it's been twice, and maybe went to the beach once. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I just love the beauty of the lakes and the mountains and the ocean. It's just uh, majestic, you know. Every time I see the ocean, uh, because I'm uh, from Colorado, I grew up all my life in Colorado, but I think I've lived longer in New Hampshire now than I did in Colorado. But every time I go to the ocean, it's just powerful to me. It's overwhelming. But here, Pastor Veal says, all created beauty is but a mere shadow and duskiness. If you go on and read, he says, if your eyes are well fixed on this glory of God, they will not be easily drawn to wander after other subjects. If your heart is taken with God, it will be mortified to everything that is not of God. As I was thinking this week on this subject, uh, actually for several weeks now, this subject is just too big to, to handle for a Sunday, but I was thinking God's people, like our society and culture, are so distracted and busy with life, with life in general that there seems to be very little time Very little time in our days to stop and meditate and think upon the Almighty. And so the Lord encouraged my heart to just kind of go peripherally around the doctrine of God. We'll go through a little bit here, but um, King David wrote in Psalm 27, 4, we just sang one of the verses. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Now David was a king, and he had the the kingdom, the state to run. And there was far little more time that David had in running a kingdom than most men and women have in their normal tasks. But he was taken up with wanting to sit in God's temple and meditate on the Lord. It was his desire to worship God. And for our call to worship this morning, we read earlier chapter 2 of our confession. And I want to read it again for us uh, just a little bit. And then I want to go through some of the proof texts that are also in our confession that explain to us, God and what he has revealed about himself in the scriptures. So let's read it again, if you will, um, in your bulletins. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible, has no parts, has no body, has no parts, nor unchangeable, nor changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He's unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. 
He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Now the confession gives several verses, as I said, as proof text to this statement. And I would like to take just a few minutes to read a few of these. I'll begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. It says there, There is no God but one. For there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord, the Lord is one. Jeremiah 10.10 says, But the Lord is is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. John chapter 4 verse 24 says, God is a spirit, and he seeks those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. The Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17. He says this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon is praying to the Almighty and says this about God in verse 27, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Cannot contain you. God is immense beyond our ability to calculate. Jeremiah 23, 23 says this, I am a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? That's a strange passage there because it talks about God's immensity, but also talks about his eminence. He is vast that the heavens cannot fill him, but he's also near, a God that's near. That's amazing. Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That verse speaks of God's eternal existence from everlasting to everlasting. Genesis 17, 1 says, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, And said to him, I am God Almighty. That's the the name Al Shaddai, the most powerful one, speaking of God's omnipotence. He is all-powerful. Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Those are the angels. And I encourage you to, to go online and listen to um, R.C. Sproul's message on the holiness of God. He explains that 
triune holiness of God in a, in a powerful way. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there was no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Speaking of his sovereignty, God knows the beginning and the end of all things. He is sovereign. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Nehemiah 9.32 and 33 says, Now therefore our God... The great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. God is a covenant-keeping God. Psalm 5 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God cannot dwell in wickedness. Naaman 1, 2, and this is the last one. A jealous and an avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. All in one passage, it speaks of the Lord's Wrath against sin and vengeance upon his foes. But yet he's slow to anger and great in power and patient. All these verses and many, many others, many more others speak to the glory of God. Listen again to that middle portion of our confession that there on chapter 2. It says, he works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will. For his own glory. Right there, our confession gives the purpose of God himself. In John chapter 17, if you'll turn there, Jesus reveals to his disciples the very same purpose for our lives. As well as uh, for the disciples as he was praying for them, He was praying for us as well in his intercessory prayer. Uh, Lord willing, Pastor, will get to John 17 and go through the chapter verse by verse. That is not my intention this morning. I just want to take one verse as our text. So let's turn there and we'll read the first eight verses. And we're going to take verse 3 as our text. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. It was the purpose of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to glorify the Father. Everything that Jesus did was to obey and honor the Heavenly Father. This was his stated purpose, to do the will of the Father. Now in godly succession, his people are to do the same thing. Glorify the Father. And that's what Jesus' prayer was for them, that they would do as he did and glorify the Father. Look at the end of verse 1, and and we'll read through verse 3. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you have gave him authority over all flesh, to all uh, whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is the gift of God in Christ, but it is also the purpose in life, which the former child of wrath is given at that moment when he or she turns from darkness to light. When Christ comes into the life, eternal life is ours as the gift. And Jesus says here that that eternal life looks like something. And what does it look like? that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here is our purpose in life, to know God and to know Jesus Christ. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. So here's the first point of my message. To know God is our purpose. That's our purpose. I know, Rich, this is rudimentary. Yes, it's rudimentary. But I think we need to be reminded over and over again, this is our purpose in life. You know why? Because life tends to storm in upon us, doesn't it? Life comes in harsh and hard. And we need to be reminded that our purpose is to glorify God in knowing Him and knowing Christ. Here's a good question. What is it that you are thirsty for? Perhaps this statement to this woman that Jesus gives is a gauge to measure the validity of our life. What are we thirsting for? Having come to Christ for that life, we now have a well of life, he says, springing up in us that we can constantly draw from and so that we're never thirsty. Our thirst and hunger are for God and for Christ. Here is eternal life, a new thirst for God. Here's how we come to to glorify the Father with our lives. We feed upon him and his word. 
The old water that this world offered is still there. We all see it constantly. But because we have been given a new thirst, that old water no longer has power to enslave us. You know, we can turn back and we can get back into the world and get back in the mud and the mire again. But you know, we're no good for it anymore. If we have that thirst in us for Christ, sin is no good. We can't stay there. It has not the power to enslave us anymore. We have the ability and the liberty. That's a good word, liberty to run from it, to die to it. <clears throat> what was that quote from Pastor Veal? If your heart is taken with God, it will be mortified to everything that is not of God. Mortification is an old word. And I think it needs to be relearned in this 21st century of ours. We need to learn to die, to mortify our old passions, our old thirsts. Do you remember when Jesus fed the multitude in John chapter 6? We're a lot in John today, aren't we? We're still in John, brother. John chapter 6. Uh, pastor recently preached on this passage. The crowds were following Jesus. Not because they saw this miracle of feeding so many people with so little food, but they followed Jesus because they wanted more food. Turn to John chapter 6, and we'll read just a few of those verses, if you will. Uh, read in verse 26. <clears throat> Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the miracle, but because or, or saw the sign, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe? What, do you do, uh, what work do you perform? And then they said, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. These people were not hungry or thirsty for God at all. Their theology was so skewed that even after centuries of God's wrath, wrath against national Israel, the priesthood still had no desire for the truth, nor to understand the scriptures concerning the Messiah. They didn't know what to look for in the Messiah. He came to them exactly how the prophets had foretold, 
He walked among them, and they never knew him. John wrote in his gospel, He came unto his own, but those that were his own did not receive him. The old King James says it similarly. similarly. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Emphasizing the negative on the not. They did not receive him. In stark contrast, those who come to Christ for that living water are given eternal life with that eternal thirst to know God and to know Christ. Here's a good question. What is it that your soul longs for and hungers for? We need to ask ourselves that question all the time. Since we have been given this purpose in life, and this is what it means to have eternal life, my second point is this. To know God is a priority. The pursuit of the Almighty is number one on our to-do list. This takes precedence in our lives. Now, we all have titles next to our name, every one of us. Some of us have more than one. Um, I'm a husband. There's a lot of husbands. There's a lot of wives in here. That right there is a full-time task. You know? Some of us are fathers and mothers. That's a tremendous task. Takes a lot of time. All of us are either employers or employees. That right there takes eight hours of the day, if not more. So our time is limited, isn't it? And our tasks are many. But the number one task, the number, the priority task is that the knowledge of God and the pursuit of the Almighty is number one. David knew that to seek the Lord was his priority. Psalm 27, 8 says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. This is the cry of a soul that has purpose in life. And that purpose is to seek the Lord. The psalmist writes again in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you like a dry, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have sought you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David sought after the Lord. One more verse from the Psalms. Psalm 70, verse 4. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. There's David's priority, to magnify God. To know God is to magnify God. To know God is our priority. The Apostle Paul's letters to the different churches prioritizes the knowledge of God as well. He wrote to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 1, for, uh, verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith, your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. And while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, number one, may give you a spirit of wisdom, and revelation in the knowledge of him. <clears throat> Number two, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
So he's just not asking for a wisdom of the mind and wisdom <clears throat> revelation of the knowledge of God. He's praying that it would get down into the heart. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian church that this was a priority for them to the knowledge of God. He says the same things in Philippians and, and in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11, it says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that is, of their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So it was a priority with the Apostle Paul, not only with David and with the Apostle Paul, but with Peter also. Knowing and learning the Lord was a priority for Peter. He wrote his second epistle to the churches in Asia Minor. And in verse the first three verses, he says this in chapter 1, Simon Peter a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and grace and excellence. So Peter also made this a priority when he wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. His first thought was for the righteousness of God and that his people would understand the knowledge of God. And then we find at the end of this chapter, in chapter 17 of John, <clears throat> If we go back there and look there in the last two verses, Jesus at the end of his prayer closes with these words, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known you that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Here's Christ's heart for his disciples. That I have made your name known to them, and will make it known. I would argue that this was the priority of Jesus Christ also. Before he was crucified, this is just ours before the Lord went to the cross. He directed his prayer to the Father for his disciples. With this top priority, he wanted them to know the Father. And his intercessory prayer was for them that they might know him. And he said his work on earth was to make the Father known. 
To know God is our priority. Since this is our purpose in life, and pursuing a knowledge of God is our priority, then thirdly it follows that the knowledge of God must be practical. The pursuit of the knowledge of God is very practical. I've heard said before that studying the deep doctrine of the triune God is not very practical. It's hard. It's hard because the flesh fights you tooth and nail because the knowledge of God is something that Satan doesn't want us to have. So it's very hard. But I have to tell you that it's very practical. Listen to this quote by C.H. Spurgeon. It's um, from one of his sermons, and the title of the sermon is Meditation on God. Quote, It has often been insinuated, if it has not been openly said, that the contemplation of divine things has a tendency to depress the spirits. Religion may, uh, many thoughtful persons have supposed, does not suit the young. It checks the passion of their youthful blood. It may be very well for men with gray heads who need something to comfort and solace them as they descend the hill of life into the grave. It may be well enough for those who are in poverty or deep trial, but that is at all in agreement with the condition of a healthy, able-bodied, successful, and happy person. This is said to be out of the question. There is no greater falsehood. No man is so happy, but he would be happier still if he would meditate on the Almighty. End quote. I agree with Spurgeon. Meditation on God is not just for the weary and the weighed down. It is practical for every turn in life. When a loved one dies and you're heavy of heart, do we turn to the uh, doctrine of end times to take comfort? Eschatology? (laughs) No. We turn to the 23rd Psalm, don't we? To remind ourselves about our Savior. To look at that one who would lead us beside those still waters again. And to lead us into green pastures. We don't take comfort in other doctrines. We take comfort in our God. When we hear bad news from the doctor, we go to the one who knows all things. We turn to the God who is sovereign, who knows the beginning from the end. We turn to that one whose name is Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals thee. When something goes wrong in life, we turn to the solid truths we know about God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What can be more practical than that? Bank accounts, an awesome job, a good paycheck, or even a good friend are not where the people of God turn when life jumps on us, leaves us bruised and battered. What we know about God will be the solace and the balm of comfort. That comes to the heart. Is it not? It's very practical. The study of God is very practical. I'll be 65 in a few months. To some of you, I'm just a youngster. 
But to most of you in here, I'm, I'm older. But us older folks are feeling the age that we are. The body begins to creak and to groan. The ailments come. Every time you go to the doctor, you don't know what you're going to hear next. You know? But what hits you, and what hits me more now than anything, in a deeper way, is the realization that most of life is behind me. And for us in here that are elderly, most of life is behind us. Not that the life we have still is not going to be good, but most of life is behind us. But this is not a time to shrink back and take it easy, you know. Retirement age is coming, so we're going to take it easy physically. But this is not the time to take it easy spiritually. This is the time more than ever to get into the books, to get into the Bible, to get into studying. We need to set, continue to set the example for all of God's people coming behind us. And so I encourage you elderly folks here today, pour over those books, study the scriptures, meditate on the Lord. If you wind up on a bed of, of sickness, there's nothing that's going to get you through it except the Lord and thoughts on God and what he has done for you. This will bring great victory of the heart and mind and soul. Life is filled with so much heartache, sin and brokenness that we cannot, uh, we get to constantly, I should say, we get to constantly put into practice what we know about our God and what we know about our Savior. So what can be more practical than that? That's why it's a priority. That's why it's our purpose in life. <clears throat> the pursuit of the knowledge of God is our purpose. It is our priority, and the pursuit of knowing God is very practical. Let me say one more thing as we close. We gather from Scripture, and by looking at history and around us, that it has been the purpose of Satan and thus the children of darkness to rob by every means possible the glory that is due to the Almighty. We see it all around us. All you need to do is stop for a minute and read a blog, read a newspaper or a periodical, watch a video. In this present evil age that we're living in, almost everything that man does in affront is an affront to truth. It's blasphemous against our God. It's insulting to the purity and holiness of our God. The scriptures are confounded by every imaginable way possible. But you know what? They can do nothing else. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are guided and led by their Father. Jesus said this about them in John 8.44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever we, he speaks lies, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we need to be careful what we are filling our minds with. And that is my admonition. 
in this message as we close. Our devices, tablets, phones, computers can be a great, great blessing to us. But they can also rob the Almighty of His glory. And we need to be careful of what we set before our eyes. They can be used to keep us distracted from our purpose in life. That is to know our God and to enjoy Him and to worship Him and to know His Son, Jesus Christ. And so let's pursue the Lord together for His own namesake and for His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that our Savior prayed for us. And he said, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known you, that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Lord, thank you for that sweet prayer that our Savior continues to pray for us. Even those who have followed all these years and centuries, Lord, after his disciples. Lord, we are still those ones who have never seen thee, but yet believe. And so, Lord, we ask that you would add a blessing to our hearts and help us, Lord, to take these things seriously and to not let the devil deceive us, Lord. Oh, Lord, what a horrible thought if, if we are in the last days and Satan is doing all he can to distract us and keep us, Lord, from our purpose. And so, Lord, help us. Encourage us and and deliver us, Lord, from sin and from Satan and from our own imaginations, Lord. Deliver us and keep us in your word. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.